Last thing handout is simply the PowerPoint slides uh, brought to you courtesy of PDF and Mr. Craig. Everybody have those two sheets. So there'll be the big print, that's a PowerPoint slide, and then the regular outline. All right, Jeremiah 31, we've read. Um, so I think that with respect to time, we won't go back and reread that right now. We are going to read it again in a bit. So let's pray as we look now at the Covenant of Grace, Part 2, Unity. Our kind and gracious God, we look unto you as a servant to his master and a handmaiden to her mistress. We're weak and helpless, Lord, but you said open wide our mouths and you will fill them. You filled us with the good things materially at lunch. We ask, Lord, that you will have refreshed us that we might as is said, gird up our minds now and give ourselves, Lord, to some more hard work, that you'll give us the mental and physical capacity to do it, but above all, spiritually, that your spirit will work in us uh, to understand that which we will discuss now. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The first half of your handout is merely for you. Um, we're not going to try to cover it today. I didn't know in terms of where, you, I know where you're located. I know dispensationalism is a big thing here. Uh, and so these are just some notes that with scripture, a discussion of it with some critique uh, offered for it as well. What we want to do now, though, is talk about the unity of the covenant. Uh, as background, let me read Paragraph 5 now from chapter 7. You know, I, I didn't really touch much on paragraph 4. I said I would do something about that. The covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and of the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Now, are those that think that uh, testament is talking here about a last will and testament. And the word is used that way. And perhaps once in Hebrews chapter 9, it's used that way. But this word I told you about, diatitheme, the verb, and diatheke, the noun, carries with it this idea. And the reason the confession says this is that the covenant of grace is unique in that um, it is an inheritance received now. And it's a guaranteed inheritance. So in Jewish law, the inheritance could be received while the uh, inheritor was still alive. And so the parable of the prodigal son, he got his inheritance. Where in Roman law, the inheritance could not be received until uh, the death of the uh, one who's bequeathing the inheritance. And in Hebrews 9, that's probably the figure that's there. But normally, it's not referring to Christ's death. In itself, but his completed work as the covenant head. And what many writers say is that when the New Testament writers refer to the old covenant, they use the language covenant. When they're talking about the activity, the reality of the new covenant, they use the word testament. Now, I've not gone back and checked the King James to see how 
precisely they are about that. But that's the idea. Our covenant is so sure it is, it is as inviolable as uh, an inheritance. It's done. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. And nobody can take it away from you. The difference is you receive that now. Uh, as you're in the covenant, you're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, and you have received uh, the blessings. You've received eternal life. Now we'll go into a different phase of eternal life and our death and finally in our glorification. But that's the meaning here. It is so, it's as sure, as unbreakable as, uh, humanly speaking, a will would be. And that is what we have. Now, that lays the foundation for what we're going to talk about now in terms of how the, the New Testament translators talked about the Old Testament covenant. They used the word covenant because it was not yet signed, sealed, and delivered. So it is this it is this great covenant that God's made, but it took the death and resurrection of Christ for the inheritance to be fully delivered to us. So words like testamentary covenant or covenantal testament are used by the writers to talk about the absolute surety of this relationship, this bond, this fellowship that God has made with us. I, I Quickly, we're going to come back to the promise, but I am your God and you are my people. In fact, that's what I did want to read as we started this afternoon. I think I said I would do that. Second Corinthians 6. Here's the reality of who and what we are. You know, Paul's been talking here about the dangers of fornication, being in union with uh, men or women that are not your spouses. Uh, and, and he says then, verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. Now he quotes the Old Testament. I will, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. There's that covenant promise from Genesis 17, straight through the Bible. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You should be sons and daughters to me, says the Almighty. That is the essence of the covenant of grace. I haven't really pushed that idea. This is the, this is the relationship that you have with God uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, guaranteed by the covenant. So let me reiterate it. I will be their God. They'll be my people. I'll be a father to you. You should be sons to me. That is who and what you are by covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, now paragraph 5. The covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and the time of the gospel. So law is taken here simply the Old Testament. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances. By the way, we're on page 924. Other ordinances delivered by to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament under the gospel. When Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which the covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word 
and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's where we're going this afternoon, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them itself forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Now, the word dispensations means administration. So this is not saying there's dispensationalism, but there are these various administrations of the covenant of grace. Now, as you think about the structure of the Bible and the covenant, there's basically four ways that people approach this covenant. Some what are called disparate. It's just, it's no relation whatsoever. People read the Bible, they don't think twice about the covenant of, of God and his people. They just read the Old Testament as the Old Testament. They sometimes do, sometimes don't see a relationship with the New Testament, read the New Testament, and fail to, to see this whole flow that, by which God has revealed himself. Then, of course, there's dispensationalism that chops up the Bible into disconnected parts. So there's no unity, there's no progress in God's purposes, but there's these jump starts. Each one uh, goes out with the crisis, the next one comes in. Uh, and in dispensationalism, as I'm sure most of you know, and it's here in the notes, that uh, uh, it was not God's intention that Christ die, it was God's intention that Jews receive uh, a kingdom from him, just like the Pharisees wanted. You know, they wanted that kind of Messiah. And they really have no explanation. If he'd been accepted, how would sin have been atoned for? Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> um, if the Jews had done what God said they were supposed to do, there'd have been no death and resurrection of Christ. We still have animal sacrifices, which they say is going to happen sometime uh, in the future. And they also have covenants. You can't, you know, they can't miss the fact there's covenants in the Bible, but there's no relationship, really. Um, that is also a failure. Uh, and then today, uh, amongst some of the Calvinistic Baptists, there's what, I, what they call New Covenant theology. And this is a theology that fails to see the close relationship between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant administrations uh, uh, in the way that is spelled out here in the Confession of Faith. That particularly then would apply to a very weak view of the law of God, because that was in the Old Covenant, and a weak view of the Sabbath. And so if you follow some of the people at Southern Seminary and others who, in some respects, are Calvinistic, um, these are going to be areas uh, that you're going to find uh, uh, differences with what I believe the Bible teaches, and that I'm going to try to demonstrate in this time that we have now, and that is the unity of the covenant. So I think what I'm going to try to do is give you a little bit of the exegetical argument for the unity of the covenant. And then spend most of our time, though, actually I want to show you through these uh, reproduced slides exactly what God did in every administration of uh, the covenant. So um, if you go on your outline to B, the unity of the covenant of grace... I don't have pages on mine, do you? Well, it's, it's capital B. Page three is what it looks like on mine. 
Yeah. Yeah, so the unity of the covenant of grace this has Dr. Roberts' name because this comes from him, and the very first thing is structural unity. Everybody with us? Find your place? Top of page three, very good. So uh, what Dr. Robertson's done here is he looked at the scriptures and how each covenant then is intertwined. You cannot separate them. So he begins by an argument of what he calls structural unity. And by that, in the administration of the new covenant, it's related to the previous covenant. So he has the unity of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants. Structurally, unity in inauguration. So, for example, in Exodus 2 and Exodus 3, the basis of entering into the Mosaic Covenant was God fulfilling what? The Abrahamic Covenant. Keeping the Abrahamic Covenant is why he made the Mosaic Covenant. That's what we mean by structural unity. It's not, well, that one hasn't worked. Let's do something else. No, they are part and whole of the same. So on the basis of the promises to Abraham, God now makes this covenant with Moses and the people to bring them out of the land. Uh, The same is true then uh, with uh, Moses and David. So in 2 Samuel 7, 6 and 1 Kings 2, 3, the Davidic covenant flows out of the Mosaic covenant. So it's like three cars on a train. So car one is coupled to car two. There's the Abrahamic and the Mosaic. But car two is coupled to car three. And it's one train. Yes, there's different cars but they're structurally united. You cannot separate them in the way that God administered them. Now, there's also a unity in the history of life. So, one is an inauguration. The the new covenant is inaugurated in the context of what God's promised in the previous covenant, but also life in the covenant. And that is, for example, after the golden calf in Exodus 32... What does Moses plead with God? He pleads the Abrahamic covenant. When God says, I'm going to destroy the people, Moses says, no. You made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now living in the reality of the Mosaic covenant, Moses is pleading the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. What does Joshua do? In 1.3, Joshua then pleads the promise of the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant for God giving the land now to the people um, in the days of the uh, judges. Or the Davidic covenant, the the Mosaic covenant, uh, said there would be one place where God would put his name, one city. That is fulfilled in the Davidic covenant in First uh, uh, Chronicles 16, no, uh, when David captured Jerusalem in 2 Samuel. And then the Abrahamic is fulfilled in the Davidic covenant in 1 Chronicles 16, 15 to 18. So the way that God's people lived, they didn't simply live under the present covenant. They lived under all of the covenant as it was understood together. You follow that. Okay. Then there is the unity. And we're going to come back to this when we look at the development of the covenants. 
Now, I tell my students, I know some of you here today are Calvinistic Baptists, if you really understand, if you really understand the unity of the covenant, you have no problem with uh, covenant baptism. And that's the direction I'm going with you this afternoon. I've told you ahead of time now, so you can... Uh, but you just need to see that the covenants, they're all the same in terms of what God is doing. So there's, this is very important now. The unity in the genealogical administration. So what does God promise Abraham in Genesis fifteen eighteen? He promises that he's going to have a seed more numerous than the stars. He promises the covenant is with you and your seed. What does God promise in the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 20? Verses 5 and 6, that uh, God will be a God to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. What does God promise to David in 2 Samuel seven twelve? God promises that this covenant is with him and his seed and will not be broken. That's why when you read through um, the history then and, and you read the sins of these kings that said, but God left a light in Jerusalem for David. He was honoring this uh, genealogical uh, uh, concept. Now we come to the new covenant, Isaiah fifty nine twenty one, And here we have it now applied to the new covenant. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you and my words, which I've put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your seed or offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. Isaiah fifty nine twenty one. We see that the covenant is made with the next generation in Deuteronomy 29, verses 4 and 5. I find this one really remarkable. Yet to this day, is that right, 20, uh, no, 14 and 15. Now, now he's talking to them, Deuteronomy 29, verse 14, in your notes. He's talking to them as he's renewing the covenant now before they enter the land. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, and with those who are not with us here today. Other words, subsequent generations. Do you, you see this. If you see this, then everything begins to fall in place. God is a God of the seed. He makes this covenant with those who weren't even born yet. If they're about to enter the land of Canaan. He promises a thousand generations in Psalm 105, 8 to 10. Uh, Palmer Robertson figured a, genera- a thousand generations is 20,000 years, and that Abraham lived in the land 4,000 years ago. So from that time, we still got 16,000 years to go. Now, it's not to be taken literalistically in terms of 20,000 years, but it's to be taken realistically that we're talking about a covenant that goes through uh, innumerable generations. Is that not what God promised Abraham? If you can count the stars of the heavens, you can count your seed. 
it has this genealogical principle. Now, I want you to understand that this is not just physical. In fact, we will see that in every covenant administration, there is part of the seed that is not elect but reprobate. Now, it is a physical promise, but it is a spiritual promise. Uh, there is a grafting in. So in Genesis 17, it wasn't just the natural-born children to Abraham, but it was his purchased slaves, those who lived in his household. Ezekiel 47, 21 to 23, anticipates this reality for the new covenant. This is new covenant prophecy. You know, all here at the end of Ezekiel, you recognize we've already had this really curious temple that's a picture of Christ and the church. And after that's described, we now have the land divided. Now, this is all in uh, imagery. Uh, you recognize that when the prophets and God through the prophets was trying to communicate to people uh, new covenant reality, he had to use old covenant language. Just those of you who have taught, no, you, you don't start with a concept that's brand new. You've got to take what is known and build on it. So all this section in Ezekiel is using Old Covenant language. Ezekiel does early, talks about the Messiah being David. But look at this now. He divides the land in verse 21. So Ezekiel 47, 21. So you should divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You should divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves, among the aliens. Now these are non uh, ethnic Jews, aliens who stay in your midst to bring forth sons in your midst, and they shall be to you as the native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And in the tribe which which the alien stays, there you shall give him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Do you understand what's being said here? That in the new covenant reality, there will be the church. There will be those born in the church. But then from the outside, God will bring others in with their children. Now, how did this take place in the Old Testament? Well, think about some of those Jews that had very strange nicknames. Like Uriah the Hittite. Hmm. Why would any good Jewish boy want to be called a Hittite? They were cursed. They were to be destroyed. But Uriah or his daddy or his granddaddy had been converted. He had been incorporated into the tribe of Judah where he had an inheritance for him and his, well, if he'd lived, his sons after him. But you've got to grasp this. This is what Peter had in mind now on the day of Pentecost when he said the promise is to you and your seed, there's the seed principle, and as many as are far off, the alien, that's a word for Gentiles, far off, obviously uh, implied, and his seed. This genealogical principle works throughout the covenant, and it's not just physical, as you can see here. But on the other hand, it's exactly how God works. Does God work through families physically? Of course he does. And God who has made us in his image and has dealt with us, then what he's developed covenantally, physically in the family is what he does spiritually for us in the church. Uh, Dr. Robertson says that redemption, in effect, restores the order of creation and the solidarity of the family, which is one of God's greatest 
creations. So this, this is what is meant then by uh, what we're seeing here, structural unity uh, in historical experience and genealogical administration. And then we have right along uh, unity of the Abrahamic covenant, we've got unity incorporating the new covenant with the Mosaic covenant. So Jeremiah 31 is to Israel and Judah, right? We've read it once already. We're going to come back to it. But, you know, he is making now this covenant new with Israel and Judah. So here the new covenant is taking into effect uh, what God has done uh, in the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, still in Jeremiah chapter 32, um, he then shows in 39 to 41 uh, that these promises to Abraham cannot be broken. And if you look in Luke chapter 1, in the Magnificat, Mary's song, uh, she, she's anticipating now the birth of the Savior and all the good things that God is doing. Verse 54, He's given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke with our fathers to Abraham, His descendants forever. Notice this. What's He doing when the Savior is born or, or conceived in the of the Virgin Mary? He's keeping what He spoke to Abraham and His seed. You see that relationship now of the New Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. Or what uh, Zechariah then says uh, later in that same uh, chapter, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He's visited us, accomplished redemption for His people, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. Now there is a Davidic covenant. His servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from enemies from the hand of all of Hades to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. Do you see what he thinks, what he understands by the Holy Spirit as he sings this song? That what's happening now in the birth of the Messiah was what was promised to David and even earlier what was sworn to Abraham. We also see the relation to the Davidic covenant in Ezekiel chapter 34, 20, where the Messiah is called David. And to all three covenants in Ezekiel 37, 24 to 28, where this language is used now um, of the new covenant in terms of all that God has done with and for his people. Ezekiel 37, 24. My servant David, and we're talking about this is a new covenant promise. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd and walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes. They will live in the land that I gave to Jacob. There's the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, my servant in which your fathers lived, and there's the Mosaic covenant, and they will live on it that they may be sons, that they, their sons, their sons, sons forever and ever. David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. That's the covenant promised to Abraham. I will place them and multiply them and will set them my sanctuary, uh, Mosaic covenant, in their midst. My dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God. Here's the promise. They will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst. So we see this relationship now of, of all three covenants. Then it goes backwards. Um, actually, the New Covenant and the Noahic Covenant, Revelation 4, 3, what is seen over the throne of God? A rainbow. 
Why? That's relating what God's now accomplishing, promising in Revelation to the Noahic covenant. Jeremiah 31, when he pledges the permanency of the new covenant, says he uses then the promise given to Abraham that seed time, harvest time, day and night shall not fail, that that guarantees uh, the perpetuity of this covenant. And the new covenant with Adam uh, and Noah, again in Genesis 28, 22 and Jeremiah 31, God promises these things. Romans 18 goes back now to the garden, to the fall, where God says he's going to restore the creation that was cursed in the Adamic covenant. Romans 16, 20 takes the promise of the seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent and applies that to happening in the life of the church. And so there's this interaction of the covenants throughout Scripture, if you just stop and pay attention. And since I was first alerted to this, now as I read through the Bible every year, some of others of you do as well, it's just amazing how this stuff just pops off the page. Once you've got a grasp that these covenants interact, um, it is page after page uh, in Scripture. Now, Mark had a, a professor that taught them in California that, that the Mosaic Covenant was not made by oath. But I get to Ezekiel chapter 16, and there it is that God made an oath with the Mosaic Covenant. If you just read the Bible, you know these things. You don't impose something on the Bible. Let the Bible impose its truth upon you. Well, there's many other arguments here. Uh, they're in your notes. we got thematic unity. That's that promise I told you starts in Genesis 17 and goes straight through to the book of Revelation, the one we summarized there in Second uh, uh, Corinthians and all that goes with that, forgiveness of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit, justification, sanctification, straight through the Scripture. God dwelling in the midst of his people. You remember that was what was happening in the Garden of Eden? Everything from before the fall, everything after the fall is simply moving back to the Garden. So what do we get? We first get an impermanent sanctuary. And then we get a permanent sanctuary in the temple. Then we're promised even a greater sanctuary in Ezekiel. And now that sanctuary first is we, the temple of God, who are moving to the final destination, which is this glorious heavenly garden of God that's heaven where we live with him forever. Once again, straight through scripture. The conditions, uh, the sovereignty of it. God says, I will put, I will do. The sacrificial system ordained by God through all the covenants. The necessity of faith. I'll come and show you in a minute how Adam and Eve believed the promises. Law. Every covenant administration from Adam and Eve onward had the responsibility to keep law, to obey God. As I said, included the seed. Now, that was jumping ahead, in fact. My pages got switched here. Same, uh, same uh, theme, same mediator. There's one God, the uh, God-man between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.16, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, Malachi 3, 1. He's the messenger of the covenant. Um, 1 Peter 1, 9 to 12, Romans 3, 25, Hebrews 9, 15, this covenant mediator. I've mentioned the same condition. And the unity in types. So circumcision, Passover, offerings, tabernacle, temple, as we read there in paragraph 4 of the confession, all that is pointing to Christ and the new covenant church. And the New Testament shows how every one of these things, and I'll show you right now, uh, are uh, 
uh, fulfilled. So, if you'll get your uh, printed out PDF of your PowerPoint slides, I was really proud of these slides, too. I've used them now for a bit. Uh, actually, I really think, by God's grace, that this should really help you as we work our way through this. So what I've done, I've taken each covenant administration and related it in a whole, in the sense like a great play or a great drama, and show how they all are necessary. You could change the figures. Like a, it's like a mosaic. Or Robinson's figure that's there in, in your notes uh, as the oak is in the acorn, so the whole gospel of God is in the first germinal promise embedded in the very curse of Eden. It springs forth and develops in ever larger and clearer proportions through each successive revelation, from the paradise of Adam to the paradise revealed anew in the visions of the apocalypse. And surely you've noted those parallels with the tree of life and, and the garden, all these things in Revelation, and we're simply seeing the culmination uh, so, too, with the development of the church of God as an element of the first gospel promise, each successive covenant enunciates more and more clearly and largely the same one idea through the entire Old Testament to the fully revealed kingship of Messiah. And so far from being something distinct from the Old Testament, the New Testament glories ever in being the grand fulfillment of all things spoken in the prophets and the Psalms concerning Christ, which is what Christ himself said in Luke chapter 24. So we go to the Adamic covenant, and it is the plot. So again, just as I defended the idea of a covenant of works in the garden, we see the same features now with this covenant of grace. We have two parties. We have God coming, sovereignly laying down the covenant terms, uh, uh, with Adam and Eve for them and for their seed. Now, here the plot is in Genesis 3.15. So we'll look at each of these passages as we work through, or we'll try to, if, if the clock cooperates. So, under the curse, which is quite remarkable, if you think about it, if you were God, what would you have done to Adam and Eve? I don't know, wiped them off the face of the earth and started over, Right? Not only does he not destroy them, but he actually converts them. <laughs> if anybody's sitting here this morning thinking you've, you've, you've out-sinned God's grace, then you just don't understand God's grace. He pardoned Adam and Eve, just as he pardoned old ancient Manasseh, as he pardoned Saul, the persecutor of the church. God loves to save sinners. So don't ever let Satan whisper in your ear that you've sinned too much for God to to forgive you. Uh, No, no. Adam and Eve were saved. I want you to understand that. It's clear here, as I'll show you. They were saved because our God is a God of grace. So in the midst of cursing everything else, he says in verse 15, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you... um, on your head, and you should bruise him on the heel. Now, this is uh, remarkable uh, for a number of reasons. Now, you'll have to understand that the serpent here to whom God is speaking is Satan. We know this, say, Revelation 12, where we're told that the serpent, 
uh, Satan is the serpent of old. Now, this is Satan. And through the serpent, God has cursed the physical snake, but now he's pronouncing judgment on Satan himself. And he says the judgment is going to come through the seed of woman. Remember this idea of seed. This is the first promise of the virgin birth. Does a woman have a seed? No. woman doesn't have a seed. So this is going to be a supernaturally provided deliverer. Already it's all packaged there in that little acorn. And he is going to destroy the serpent. Although in the process, he's going to be bruised in the heel. He's going to be severely wounded. And there's going to be two seeds uh, that are in this conflict. And here is all the conflict of the Bible then. The seed of the serpent in contest with the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman will narrow down to the one seed and now back out to the church. And that battle goes on today. But um, they're called, uh, so when the, the sons of God married the daughters of men, that's the two seeds. That's what was going wrong. The righteous seed began to intermarry with the, uh, with the wicked seed. But this conflict is appointed. But the two great um, combatants, of course, Christ uh, and Satan. So here's the, here's the plot of the whole Bible. Promise of deliverance through a supernaturally provided seed. You see that? Now, there were conditions. Uh, on the one hand, it was unconditional. From God's point of view, it was sovereign. I will put. I will put. And God revealed the sacrificial system. Now, that's an inference. But where do you think he got the, the uh, skins to clothe Adam and Eve, which was in itself a picture of justification. They tried to clothe themselves with a fig leaf. That's self-righteousness. God clothed them with skins and got, I believe, because the sacrificial could not have been invented out of the mind of man, that that's when God revealed to them the necessity of the animal sacrifice to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now I said Adam and Eve had faith. How do I know they had faith? Well, they, they were saved by believing the promise and approaching God accordingly. So look in verse 20 of chapter 3. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. You see, this is their way of saying, yes, God is going to provide a Savior. And God is going to give us life in that Savior. God then clothed them in the animal garments, and they knew they had to approach God by a sacrifice. And it's interesting, they named their firstborn Cain, and Cain means that uh, I've gotten a man. Uh, and they thought, this guy's going to do this right off, you know, he's given us the man. Now, Cain must have been a really bad boy, because the second son was named Abel, Vanity. They soon realized, no, this is not happening <laughs> as soon as we thought it was going to happen. This firstborn is not turning out the way uh, that, we, uh, that we wanted to see. Um, so, it's a promise with their seed. That is progressed then in chapter 5, or the end of chapter 4, verse 25. Adam had a relation with his wife, and she gave birth to a son named him Seth. Uh, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
which was to have corporate worship. So it included the seed, but not all the seed was elect. We know from Hebrews 11 that Abel was elect. He's in the, the roll call of faith. And we know that Cain was reprobate because Genesis 4 is very clear about that. And then there's Seth, and there's Enosh, and there's this great development of the righteous seed, but alongside them, out of the same families initially, is growing up this wicked seed of the serpent. Uh, and it comes to a kind of a climax in Lamech, the first uh, uh, bigam, uh, polygamist and uh, murderer, well, second murderer after Cain. So, uh, But there's the, the promise is with the seed, but the, part of that seed is not elect. You need to keep that in mind. Now, this brings us to the Noahic covenant, and I call the Noahic covenant the, the stage or the environment of the covenant of grace. So it's mentioned twice. As I said earlier, the first use of the word covenant is here in Genesis 6, uh, 18. I will establish my covenant with you. You shall enter the ark, you and your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And it goes on with the animals. And then uh, reiterated in 9, 9 through 12. I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that's with you, birds, cattle, etc. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood. Neither shall there be again a flood to destroy the earth. This is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you, every living creature that's with you, for all successive generations. I've set my bow in the cloud. It should be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. Now, there are those that say that this is not part of the covenant of grace because it's not just made with Noah and his seed, but with all of creation. But I think that's just a failure to understand exactly what God is doing here. The key is to go back to chapter 8. In chapter 8, when they come off of the ark, in verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of men, of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth I will never again destroy every living thing as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold heat, summer, winter, day, and night shall not cease. Now, does anybody notice what's strange about verse 21? I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Do you recognize that it's the very same language that is used for why God is going to destroy all the earth? Verse 6 of chapter 6. The Lord was sorry, made man on the earth, grieved. I will blot out man whom I have created in the face of the land. Uh, 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 verse 5. Saw the wickedness of the man was great on earth. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Doesn't that strike you as strange? The very reason that God gave for destroying the earth, he now says when he comes off the ark, and take sacrifice, which I think actually an act of covenant renewal, that God says, okay, I've made my point. If I kept dealing with the human race as it deserved, there'd never be the environment 
for this progressive development of grace. So I've shown my judgment. Now I deal with the entire human race according to an element of grace, not to destroy. But you also see how it relates to the covenant of grace with verse 22, which is then quoted in Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, or referred to. Uh, and so that what God is doing now is promising stability. And so the covenant is still made with Adam and his seed. We see that in Peter, where the ark is a type of baptism, where the whole family is baptized, but uh, one of the sons uh, is uh, himself unregenerate. So I call this the environment of the covenant, and it's absolutely necessary for God to do this if he is going to move forward with his purposes of redemption. Do you see that? So the parties, God, Noah, his seed, now the creation. But now there begins to be a narrow. We've heard about a seed of woman, but now in this covenant, that focuses on one of Noah's sons. Shem is going to be the line now through whom God's covenant promise is going to work out. So there's a promise. The covenant family is saved from temporal judgment. This is the basis of offering salvation to all people because God now has made this general covenant with, with Noah uh, to preserve the race until the end of the age. And we have also an oath taken uh, seeing by what God does. We have government now established here, which is also a necessary part of, of the preservation of some type of stability on the earth for God to accomplish his purposes. And obviously, the Messiah is implied. But notice, everything from the Adamic covenant carries over. It's unconditional. Yet Noah had to exercise faith. And so we read of that in Hebrews eleven seven. Sacrifices and promises continue. And obedience to God's law continues. So everything established in the Adamic covenant continues in the Noahic covenant with now these additions for the preservation of the race until God accomplishes his purpose. And then there's the seed. Ham and his son are reprobate, but all, as I said, typically were under baptism. If you look at, at 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, the ark was a type of baptism. The whole family was in there, but one of those seed uh, was reprobate. So we've got the narrowing of redemptive purposes to a distinct line. We've got stability for the future outworking of grace and the covenant purposes. We've got creation order reconstituted. So again, we're picking up on the Adamic pre-fall order in light of future redemption that is promised uh, in the hope, Romans 8, um, where the creation will be delivered as well. And then we've got uh, salvation by grace and a covenant sign which shows you one of the things that signs do, and that is a sign flashes the reality, confirms God's promises. All right, this brings us then to the Abrahamic covenant. This is what I call the the energy or the principle uh, of the play. And it's the federal principle, what we have here now in the Abrahamic covenant that's being established in Genesis 15, 6 and 17. And then in 17... So 15.6, in this covenant, we have the declaration of justification. Abraham believed God, reckoned him as righteousness. And then God makes this covenant, as I said earlier, and passes between the the things uh, themselves in verse 17. So again, parties, 
You still have God sovereign in this. Uh, Abraham and his seed. Now there's a narrowing of the righteous line. This takes place throughout. So we've gone from a seed to a seed of Shem. And now within Shem, we're going to have one particular descendant of Shem, the Abrahamic line. And in the Abrahamic line, one of 12 sons, namely uh, Judah. To him is rule. There's a promise, there's order, there's government, there's justification. Uh, There is now the seed that is also the Messiah that Paul says in Galatians 3.16, not seeds in the plural, but the seed singular. So here's the Messiah. If any of you young people ever memorized the children's catechism, it's a remarkable um, question and answer. How were our fathers saved in the Old Testament? Anybody remember that answer? By believing in a Savior to come. Now, an evangelical, a dispensation will tell you, well, they were saved by believing God. But no. From Genesis 3.15 on, all that were saved in the Old Testament were believing that God was going to give this promised Messiah. And all that's happening now in the unfolding of these covenants is greater and greater clarity about the Messiah. So we have carried over Everything. Conditions, rule of faith, sacrifices, the seed, not all elect, so Ishmael and Esau, not elect. We have rule of law, Genesis 17, when the covenant is repeated, God says, walk before me and be blameless. And then he renews the covenant with Abraham. We have the, uh, the rainbow. But now we have added the land promise. Now, the dispensation get confused here. And think because this is an eternal covenant, eternal promise, that it has to be fulfilled. But this Hebrew word that's used there, when it's used of God, can mean eternal. When it's used of things that God does within covenant administrations, it means just for an indeterminate long period of time. But you see, the Bible clearly says that the land promise was fulfilled in Joshua, David and Solomon, and then it's fulfilled in... Uh, the New Covenant, and you go back in your notes and look at this. I think this is a, a great insight. Barnabas sells his land and gives money to the poor. Barnabas was a Levite. Barnabas was not allowed to sell that land under the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, when the land now is, what does God say to our Savior? Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The land was always a picture of the Messiah's rule over all the nations of the earth. And so the land promise is there. There's the oath aspect of the covenant. God swears. He takes this oath of self-malediction as he passes between. We've got this clear statement on justification. Now we have added circumcision. Circumcision is a spiritual sign of a spiritual covenant. This is what Paul says in Romans 4.11. It was a seal of the righteousness had by faith. And Um, We'll come back to the importance of circumcision spiritually, but it's given here not as a physical sign primarily. We saw how these Gentiles would be engrafted into the church, but as a spiritual sign. And we're going to come back to this tomorrow morning now as a separation of the sons of God in the visible church. And the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of the visible church. And the ruler, as I've said, comes now from the tribe of uh, Judah. But now what's interesting, just to kind of remind you of what God does here, is in Galatians 3, 
Verse 27, All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave or free, neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you're whose seed? Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. You get that? If you're a Christian, you're part of the seed promised to Abraham, whose seed was given circumcision. And we'll see how God replaced circumcision with baptism. I hope you're with me. This stuff excites me because it really ties the whole Bible together for us and shows, has anything yet been ruled out in any of these covenants from the previous covenant? No. Everything is part of the covenant of grace It's just getting greater clarity as we make our way through the covenant of grace. The Mosaic covenant. Now we have the structure of our our play. And that is revealed in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Where God says when he gets them there at, at Mount Sinai, Now then, if you'll indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant then you should be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you should be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you speak to the sons of Israel. And that covenant is ratified then in Exodus 24, uh, verse 7, 6 and 7. He sent young men, they offered burnt offerings, sacrificed bulls. Moses took half the blood, put it in basins. The other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, and here's the law, read it in the hearing of the people. They said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do will be obedient. He took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant. Does that sound like the Lord's Supper? Uh, Which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Uh, Again, a little bit of church government here. How in the world did half the blood of these animals get sprinkled on all the people? It was sprinkled on the elders. The elders always stand in the place of the people. And it's clear in many places in Scripture, but here we see that had to be what happened. Because half went in a basin, and the other half got sprinkled on the congregation. So, what we have in the Mosaic Covenant now is this, the legal structure and a more clear testamentary character. Remember the inviolable nature of the inheritance. The parties carried over God, now God in Israel, is narrowed down through Abraham. The promises are the same. The land promise is going to be fulfilled. The Savior is promised, not all the seed. So 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5 shows that all those who were baptized into Moses, not all of them were converted, who ate the spiritual food, they were not all converted. So sacrifices and circumcision continue. There's not a thing in the previous things that not continued, but what's new? Well, the church has now made a nation with the principle of government to protect the seed and the land. They're big now. And God needs to rule them in this way. We now get the full liturgical system, all of which points to Christ in the church. We get the second sacrament, the Passover. We now get the promised central place of worship. And we get the legal structure under which Christ satisfied the demands and penalty of the covenant of works. Do this and live. As I said this morning, that has not changed. If you want eternal life, you must keep the law of God perfectly. But under that, no man could do, but Christ did it. He purchased for us eternal life and then satisfied the death, the penalty of that by his death. 
We now have a developed rule of law and the system under which the Messiah would obey the covenant of works and be cursed. We come to the Davidic covenant. I call it the hero. Here's, here's a star. Well, he's not really yet. He's the type of the star. So in 2 Samuel, it's established. I mentioned this morning, it's called a covenant in Psalm 89 and um, 2 Samuel 23 and Psalm 132. Everything else remains in place. I hope you see this. I know I sound like a, a stuck record, but you need to grasp this. Nothing has been taken away. It's all simply this acorn. Now it's a beautiful young tree. It includes the seed. Not all the seed are elect. So we know that uh, David's family history was a bit checkered. But now it's new. And this is what's really exciting. God formally establishes the manner by which he will rule among his people. So he rules through King David. David sits on God's throne as God sits on the throne as well in the temple. The covenant now serves as the formalizing bond which, by which God's kingdom comes among the people. So it's a nation, but now it is a, the kingdom of God. And the king is the mediator between God and his people. 2 Samuel 5, 3 and 2 Kings 23, 1 through 3. But now we have two promises. We have the Davidic line, which is the Messiah, and the Davidic city, which is the church. So all the references in the Psalms to the city of God and to Zion and Jerusalem are all types of the church, which Hebrews 12.22 makes clear to us. We have the manner of Messiah's rule over the nation as the son of David. But now get this. We now have in the Davidic covenant the full revelation that the Messiah will be divine, fully divine. I don't think we have that before this. We have his supernatural nature and, and many things about him. But it's only on the prophets and the Psalms that the deity of the Messiah is fully revealed. So Psalm 110.1, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. That's part of the beauty then of the Davidic covenant. So we come then to 2 o'clock. And we're about to finish. We didn't start on time. Um, the new covenant, the denoma, the climax. Jeremiah 31, which we've read earlier. Now, everything is carried over, but it's carried over in this way. It is all fulfilled in Christ. All of the laws, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, all of the promises. What does Paul say? All the promises are yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're not done away with. They actually come to their fulfillment, the reality over type. It includes the seed. Now, you have to understand this. That's clear in Jeremiah chapter 31, isn't it? That the new covenant is with us and with our seed. But what's new? We have grace in contrast to external legal requirements. We have two New Testament sacraments replace the old. We have full communion with God now. We're all priests. We come directly to his presence with bold access. It includes now not a nation, but all the nations of the earth. Individual work of grace takes place, but it does not rule out the corporateness of the house of Israel and Judah. And notice the house of Israel and Judah are included in this in two ways. Typically, we are Israel. But in Romans chapter 11, God promises, because these promises about having Israel and Judah, that he's going to be a day yet 
when he brings ethnic Israel back into the church. And I believe that's also promised in Jeremiah 31. But it's the greater internalization. The old covenant didn't promise regeneration. God regenerated. But now it's built into the very covenant itself. That I'm going to give you a new heart and write my law on your heart. That's why in the old covenant, the remnant was the converted. In the new covenant, the remnant in the church is the unconverted because of this great covenant reality. Um, The law could not give ability to perform. Only the spirit in the heart can do that. The uh, not having to be taught, we're told in 1 John 2.27, that has to do with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. And then Hebrews 10.17, when he says, I remember your iniquity and sin no more. Now redemption has been fully accomplished. So I hope you see there's one covenant of grace through these various historic administrations that structure the entire revelation of the Bible. And we're in exactly the same covenant that God made with Moses, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with David. And every covenant included the seed. All right, which brings us then to, and I'll try to maybe do this a little faster and and give you some time for some questions, because it brings us now to uh, the sacraments. And what I want you to understand is as as we've gone through this, as, as they distribute these papers, I hope you've seen the inextricable relationship between covenant and the covenant signs and seals. So the way covenant had a, had a sign, and that sign is wrapped to the covenant. It's not extraneous to it in any way whatsoever. And to this very day, when you see a rainbow, you ought to think about God's goodness and grace in making this covenant with his people. Circumcision um, was tied to the covenant as a covenant sign. It was a spiritual sign, as I'll show you more fully in just a minute. But it's tied to the, isn't it tied? In fact, it's so tied to the covenant that it's called the covenant. That's how closely related the the seal, the sign is to the reality of the covenant. Or or the Passover, um, where the church is celebrating uh, what God has done and anticipating what he's going to do. We come to baptism, then we would expect baptism to have the same close relationship to the covenant the circumcision had. And we would think that the Lord's Supper would be, what does he say? This is my body. This is the new covenant in my blood. You cannot divorce the covenant from these covenant signs. I want you to to grasp that. So I want you to grasp the unity of the covenant. I want you to grasp this relationship between sacrament, seal, and covenant that it cannot be broken. Are we finished? Okay. So the covenant and sacraments. Um... Sacraments are seals of the covenant, as I've said. They are pledges of God's promises. They are visible pledges of all that God promises in the covenant. 
And they are means to increase and strengthen the faith of God's people. So pledges of God's promise means uh, to increase and strengthen the faith. And by the way, I want to want you to have your confession so that uh, we have to go through this. You will have all this in front of you from uh, the confession of faith. So this is going to be tied very, very closely uh, to the uh, confession of faith. And I need to tie this shoe before it trips me or before the laces trip me or something trips me. So I've already mentioned we have an Adamic pre-fall sign, right? We have that sacrament, which is a tree of life. It was not magical fruit. The tree of life was, in fact, a sacrament. That Adam would eat that by faith, and that would confirm him in the promise of God that if he obeyed, that he would have life. Now, when he was expelled from the garden, God is speaking. God was, God at times is very comfortable using sarcasm, many times in Scripture. And he does so there. He says, uh, we're not going to let man go into the garden lest he eat that tree of life and bring life. Well, what he was saying is, if he got back in, he would try to get to that tree. But he's been banished from that tree. It's no longer a sacrament, and that's why God... The tree itself had no magical uh, propensities to it. And then we have the Noahic sign, the rainbow, which I've mentioned. And then we have the Abrahamic sign of circumcision and the Mosaic sign of the Passover. In the New Covenant, we have what? The continuation of the rainbow. But now we have these two new signs. Now remember, as we read in paragraph uh, chapter 7, uh, paragraph... Uh, The last paragraph there. Under the gospel, 6, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism, Lord's Supper. Now, you see this? This is how the covenant is dispensed now. This is how the covenant is administered in the midst of God's people, preaching, the primary means of grace, and baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's what God is using now to extend his covenant purposes in our lives, and in the church. So, the covenant then is the the baptism or the sacraments are the seal of the covenant of grace. Now, that's a typo there. That should say Westminster Confession 27, not 26. 26 is communion of the saints. So, there on the bottom of the first page, sacraments, Roman numeral 2, that should be... um, Westminster Confession 27, paragraph 1. Sacraments are holy signs and seals. So a sign is a picture. You're going down the interstate, and you see this thing that's got a picture of a gas tank or whatever, or a bed. Uh, that is the sign that will show you uh, this is the place to to get off. We handed out the wrong one. Hand out the wrong one. We had extras or something, huh? We handed out the wrong one. I just noticed that myself. Ah. Just can't good can't get good help these days. Yeah, I'm sure. So you got the one for tomorrow morning too. Don't lose it. <laughs> I'll turn it back in. <laughs> Bring it back with you.
Some of y'all might have it electronically. I don't know if this sent out to everybody or not. But uh, I sent it to most of them. If you didn't get the emails with all these on them, uh, give me your email. I'll, I'll send it to you. Okay. So the sign is is the symbol. It used to be just the picture of a gas pump. Now it'll tell you it's Shell or Exxon, but it's still a it's still a sign. It's saying get off here and you can have these things. We were traveling one time. We every year we'd come down from Philadelphia back to Mississippi at Christmas time, and this was when the Tri City area of Kingsport, Johnson City, and Bristol was undeveloped. So it's just interstate, and we're getting low on gas, and there's this wonderful sign with a gas pump. So we get off, and we get another sign, the bridge is out. <laughs> so that sign was not very helpful. But that, that's what signs do. Now, seals are different. Uh, seals are confirmatory um, acts or pledges or stamps. So you go to the Notary Public, and you get a seal, a seal in your document that authenticates signatures and what's said in that document. So the sacrament is both a picture but it's a confirmatory act as well. It is a seal by which the Holy Spirit speaks to the heart of the one who uh, has that seal. So sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Now, notice I say here, they seal, uh, but we don't seal the covenant by taking the sacrament. Only God. These are his signs, his seals. God seals the covenant. The sacrament seal God's promises to us. Um, and so th- these promised benefits may repeatedly come to mind. We may receive a deep insight therein and focus on nothing else but the benefits. Our faith is strengthened as we're assured of the certainty of the promises made. We have a foretaste of heavenly benefits and experience something of their efficacy. And repeatedly we're stirred up to be courageous in forsaking the world to strive against lust. So as I've said, they are signs and seals of the sacrament, so they're for the people of God. This is intricately connected to the covenant, and as we'll see tomorrow morning, to the church. They, um, Exodus 13, 9 and 10, show how they're to be for the people of God. Um, They're instituted by God. So Matthew 28 is the institution of baptism and first Corinthians, or Matthew 26 and 1 Corinthians 11 the institution of the Lord's Supper. Generally speaking, the sacraments represent Christ and his benefits. So 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that should be uh, 16, not 15. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 1 Corinthians 11, 25, and 26. Christ is being represented, being signified. They confirm our interest in him. Galatians three twenty seven. So that uh, we're baptized into Christ. We've put on Christ like a garment. Uh, Romans fifteen eight, where Paul says Christ confirms through uh, circumcision. It puts a visible difference between church members and rest of the world. Acts twelve forty eight or Hebrews thirteen ten. The non believer has no place at the altar to eat at the altar of Christ. Or first Corinthians eleven twenty seven to to uh, 29. So this is the, that, in Revelation, the letters. So this, the, the, the name and, and uh, the stones, all those things refer to the fact that if we're in Christ, we're being separated 
from the world. We're distinguished between uh, the world and us. And then to engage the Christian in the service of God according to his word. So Romans 6, 3, and 4, baptism is applied to the necessity of holy living. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 21, the Lord's Supper is applied to the necessity of holy living. And so the sacraments also demand of us this covenant renewal, this responsibility. It's also important to note the close relationship of the, of the thing and the symbol. In paragraph 2, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. This is easy for us to grasp if we think about some analogies. So um, a lot of us still call that tissue that's in a box Kleenex, right? If you ask somebody for a Kleenex, you'd know what you would get. But it's not necessarily Kleenex any longer. It can be made by any number of different companies. But Kleenex was the first, and because it's so closely related between the reality and the name, the name uh, brings to mind the reality, or Coke. In the South, I don't know about in Texas, but in, in Mississippi, uh, we didn't have sodas. Uh, we had Coke, right? And regardless what flavor it was, if you wanted a soft drink, you asked for a Coke. Because Coke, of course, was the best, and it was invented first, and so it was the king of all. But see, there's, there's this idea of the relationship of the reality and the name. And they're so closely related, you can put the one for the other. Well, that's the same then. That's why baptism at times will sound like baptism's regenerating. Uh, when No, it's what baptism represents is the means of regeneration. Because they're so closely united, though, that uh, the one is spoken of as the other. Now, they are means of grace. This is paragraph 3. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. There's no magic in a sacrament. Neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. This is attacking uh, Romanism. But upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains together with a precept authorizing the use a promise. And so those are the two things that make a sacrament effective, the work of the Holy Spirit, but we must never divorce it from the words of institution that are the command from Christ and the promise of Christ to use this. Now, the New Testament sacraments are two, and we notice that must be dispensed by a lawfully ordained minister of the gospel. So all this business going on today of of house churches and different people baptizing or having the Lord's Supper, or the folly back during COVID when people were actually doing virtual communion and you were having a service supposedly in your home and when they had communion on the TV screen then you'd go get your stuff out of the refrigerator and have communion. It's, it's absurd. It's foolish. Um, and plus, it's to be done only in the church and it's to be done by lawfully ordained uh, uh, ministers. And then the relationship, paragraph 5, uh, between the two uh, sacraments. The sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were for substance. I want you to get that word, for substance. The same with those of the new. The form differed. 
So the essence, the substance was the same, though the form differed. And the form differed particularly because the other two pointed not just to the sacrament, uh, to the covenant promises, but to Christ to fulfill them. And because Christ shed his blood, we have no longer bloody ordinances. Our ordinances must reflect the reality, but we have a different form. And so we have water and we have bread and wine. But the reality, the substance of the sacrament has not changed. You need, you need to grasp this. All right. So, baptism. It is defined for us then in the next chapter, paragraph 1, as a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church. So, it is the induction ceremony. We'll come back to that tomorrow. But it is the mark of membership in the church. And as John Murray says, that's the number one reason that we baptize our infants. We're not saying that uh, we think they're regenerate or anything else. They are members of the church, which I think you should already see by looking at the unity of the covenant. But also, to be unto him, the one who's baptized, a sign, that's a picture, and a seal, a confirming act of the covenant of grace, namely, his engrafting into Christ, regeneration, remission of sins, and giving his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Which sacrament is by Christ's appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. So Galatians 3.27 shows us that baptism signifies engrafting into Christ. Romans 6.5, same thing. We're buried with him, we're raised with him. Regeneration, Titus 3.5, the washing of regeneration. Remission of sins, Mark 1.4, John baptized for remission of sins. Or Acts 2.38, what did Peter say to them? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And giving up to walk in the newness of life, again Romans 6. Because we have been baptized into Christ, we are now to walk in newness of life and holiness. Paragraphs 2 and 3 deal with the administration of baptism. The outward element to be used in the sacrament is water wherewith the party to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. Dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Paragraph 2 is very clear about water. The Roman Catholic Church adds all kinds of other things to it. But God said, use water, because water in all of, of, all of every culture is the sign of cleansing, and it's to be in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's to be Trinitarian in nature. And notice then that the proper element is pouring or sprinkling. Now when it says dipping is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered, it's a glorious thing. As a Presbyterian, and you were baptized by immersion, we accept that. Uh, We only wish that the Baptists would accept our baptism, which is by pouring or sprinkling. Because Paul says there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And pouring and sprinkling is the only way that cleansing acts were accomplished in the Old Testament. Either the, the, the blood, as we saw in the covenant, the oil or whatever was sprinkled. Um, there's, there's no ceremonial cleansing. And the same with anointing for office. When priests and prophets and kings were anointed, they were anointed with oil on their heads. 
the reality of this is I'm my head, I'm under Christ. And that's why we believe that dipping, uh, that sprinkling or pouring uh, are the proper means. But again, we accept the others uh, as well. And then it's to be done by an ordained minister. Now, this is very important. This is one of the reasons the Southern Presbyterians um, rejected Roman Catholic baptism. And we baptize. We don't rebaptize. We baptize. Because now we've talked about this close relationship of baptism and the covenant. And we're going to see in the morning the relationship of the covenant and the church. Now, if this person is not in a true church, he's not in the covenant. And how in the world is he administering then a covenant sign? We don't accept his ordination. We don't accept their membership. When God converts a Roman Catholic, we receive them by profession of faith. We are saying in that that they've not been in a church. So the difference would be, say one of you had backslidden and you come and you want to join this church and you'd been a baptized member, you'd make reaffirmation of faith. We recognize the fact that you've been in the church and you've been baptized and now you're going to reaffirm your faith. But we don't do that with the, with the Roman Catholic. Their baptism does not mean what, our, what the Bible teaches baptism means. And Dabney or Thornwell, one of them says, how can it be the reality and the sign of the reality at the same time? It can't be both. If it regenerates, which is what they teach, then it can't be the sign of regeneration. So uh, that's just kind of in passing. Our denomination did a very good study report and came to the conclusion that Roman Catholic baptism is not valid, but then left each session to work that out with each person as they come. I've never... Uh, would never force a Roman Catholic convert to be baptized, but I've never had one after I explained to them uh, why I want them to be baptized who didn't think, yes, I want to be baptized. But we've left that with the session and the individual. All right, now we come to the really important part, paragraph four. That's all very important, but recognizing with rubber meets the road. Not only those that do actually profess faith and obedience unto Christ, notice the word profess, it's very important, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Now we're all agreed that adults who profess faith in Christ are to be baptized and received into the membership of the church and have in their baptism all of these spiritual things that baptism will do. But what about the second statement, infants of one or both believing parents? Well, on the basis of what we've looked at in terms of the unity of the covenant, let me try to string together uh, some arguments for you. In the first place, remember the unity of the covenant. I trust I've convinced you of that. And that the sacraments are seals of the one covenant. One covenant, sacraments are seals of the covenant. Circumcision, then, the first covenant of grace sacrament, instituted with um, Abraham, was primarily of spiritual significance. I know some of you have heard it was simply a physical thing, but that's not how the Bible treats it. Deuteronomy 10.16 speaks of circumcision of the heart. 
Deuteronomy 36 speaks of circumcision of the heart, one for repentance, one for regeneration. Romans 4, 11 and 12, circumcision is in fact a seal. Now remember, it's not just a sign, a seal. What a seal is, it's an authenticating act. A seal of justification by faith alone. That's what it meant primarily to Abraham, according to Paul, and maybe Paul had it wrong. But that's what it meant to Abraham. It was to him a confirmation that he was justified because he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we see the relationship of circumcision to baptism in um, Colossians chapter 2, which is very important in understanding this. Okay, circumcision has the same significance as baptism. It's a sign of remission of sins, of union, of regeneration, of covenant responsibility. And so we come here to Colossians chapter 2, and Paul does the work for us. Verse 10, in him, that's in Christ, you've been made complete, uh, whole and mature, um, full. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, now here's union, in Christ, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now here we see the true meaning of circumcision. It is the sign of regeneration, the removal of the body of the flesh. But how does that happen? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Do you see what Paul's done? That circumcision is a spiritual exercise that uh, signifies the heart circumcision, regeneration, removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ who now does this in us. And how does he do it? In our baptism. So here we see that circumcision is spiritual and that baptism is now how Christ exercises New Testament circumcision. Do you see this? That baptism has replaced circumcision as the new covenant sign, having exactly the same meaning. So then we see the relation to Abraham that we've already had in Galatians 3, uh, 23 uh, through 29. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. There again is the interaction of the Mosaic Covenant now and the New Covenant so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're full grown. We're sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you, he's talking to you guys now, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You're all one. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. If you've been baptized, you're in union with Christ, and you are part of the seed of Abraham. 
That takes us into what we read in Ezekiel 47. When the aliens were incorporated into Israel in the Old Covenant, they were given their place. And that's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. The promise is to you and your seed, as many as are far off. And what happens? 2,000 souls were baptized that day. Very interesting. When souls is used like that in the Bible, Old and New Testament, it means men, women, young and old, indiscriminately. So when Jacob went down to Egypt, it said 70 souls, and that included men, women, and children. So adults believed on the day of Pentecost, but 2,000 souls were baptized into the church and were added then to the church. That's the reality of what is being expressed there in Acts of chapter 2. And then we, of course, have Luke 18, where Christ says that the children are to be blessed because they are members of the kingdom. The disciples are upset, and um, they want the women to take the babies. And notice this is babies. That's why I chose Luke. The others are not as clear. Verse 15, they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them, bless them. When the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God, which is the our confession is, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, belongs to them. They are members of the church. And thus do not hinder Christ from uh, blessing them. And then what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If a believer is married to a non-believer. So in, the, in Nehemiah, they were to be separated. People were wondering now, I've been converted. My husband, my wife's not been converted. What do I do? And Paul uh, says, in verse 14, unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. That means set apart. Unbelieving wife sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. One believing parent God considers the child holy, belonging to him. And of course, the household baptism. It's interesting that it's in Acts chapter 16. This happens twice as Paul's European ministry gets underway now. Um, he's been much more in mixed congregations up to this point. Wouldn't have been much of an issue there, but now he's in this really Gentile area. And we read of uh, Lydia and um, as they are, uh, verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, who was baptized? She and her household. Just as soul means indiscriminately men, women, young and old, household includes children. Now we know that from 1 Timothy where Paul uh, gives under the uh, responsibility of um, an elder uh, that um, he must manage his own household well, keeping his children under control. You see, household includes children. And then again in Philippi, when the Philippian jailer uh, professes faith in Christ, uh, we see then that um, 
Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house or his household. He took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds. Immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Now one of the objections is, well, we, we mostly find professors' baptism uh, in the New Testament. Well, if we went to a, an unreached tribe in Africa, we begin to preach the gospel, what are we mostly going to see initially? We're going to see pagan converts baptized. But we're going to see those who have families bringing their families along the way. But in the New Testament missionary context, don't be surprised that you find professors' baptisms. Of course, we believe in professors' baptisms. But when you come across the household baptisms, recognize that as people are coming to Christ, then their families are also, the children in particular, are being inducted into the membership. Now, as I said, the covenant seed in every kind of ministration is in the church. If baptism is the sign of membership in the church, why, do we, but why should we not exercise baptism for these members of the church? We're not saying they're all going to be regenerated. But we are saying that they belong to God. And he's made special promises to us for them. And it's in light of that that we then would baptize them. So I hope that creates some questions. We've got doing a little better today. Uh, and this leads to the last thing, paragraphs 5 to 7 on baptism, that it is a means of grace. So it's a sin to neglect or condemn baptism. But baptism does not regenerate or wash away sins, and we know of examples of adults baptized, such as Simon the Magician and others. Um, nor does baptism mean that the one who is baptized is definitely regenerate. We're not presuming the regeneration of our children or an adult. As elders, we cannot read the heart of an adult any more than we can a child, can we? We receive them upon a credible profession of faith. Uh, and... Uh, when our little one then says, I said, do you love Jesus? And she says, yes, I do. For a two-year-old, that's a credible profession of faith. At four, it becomes a little more profound. If that child begins to show a really rebellious spirit and disobedient strain, then you would say, you know, you belong to God, but you're behaving as if you belong to the world. And you challenge them. But grace is offered and conferred in the right use of baptism. So grace is offered in baptism, but the efficacy is not tied to the moment of administration. Otherwise, your baptism would do you no good. See, efficacy of baptism is blessed by the Spirit throughout our lives as we reflect on our baptism. And an infant is taught about his or her baptism. They reflect on that as we reflect on ours. And so... Paragraph 6, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment of time wherein it's administered, yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs, according to the counsel of God's own will and its appointed time. So, a covenant child begins to grow materially, physically, spiritually, uh, begins to uh, claim those promises by faith, taking hold of what God's promised in baptism, 
that becomes an effective means of grace in his or her life. Just as it would if they had come to baptism uh, at 17 or 18 or 20 or 30 or 50 or 60. Now, we're going to skip this, but you've got it, and I expect you to really get acquainted with how to improve your baptism. Because here is how it remains effective in your life. So you children, young people who were baptized, all of us, need regularly to meditate on Larger Catechism 167. It's there in your notes. Every time you observe a baptism, same way we go to a wedding ceremony or an ordination, we reflect on our vows, you reflect on yours. But every time you're tempted, now for me that's every day, I don't know about you guys, but that means I should be talking, thinking about my baptism very often and sucking out of it the grace that God has uh, promised there. Well, that leads us then to uh, the Lord's Supper. Now that should be Roman numeral 4 and not 3. We're trying to merge these two forms. For some reason, uh, this last part got cut off of what I sent. It happened on my end, not not here. Um, So the uh, Lord's Supper then is also a covenant sign of the covenant. It's the covenant meal. In fact, that's what Christ says. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for remission of sins of many. This is the covenant blood uh, that is given uh, for us. And thus, this should be a very precious, precious sacrament in our lives. In fact, I've come to the point where I'm very convinced now of the importance of weekly communion uh, because of the precious nature of what God is doing. Mark looks surprised. I told you that already, I think. Anyway, um, for, the, for the grace that is in this for us. And it's, it is the covenant meal. So let's just quickly get through. It's instituted by the Lord. It's a sacrament of his body and blood. The elements are bread and wine. And it's to be observed till the church returns. That's paragraph one. Its purpose in memory of Christ's sacrifice, so do this in remembrance of me. So we, um, we do, we should uh, remember what Christ has done for us. And Paul says you are proclaiming the gospel uh, as you take the Lord's Supper. And then sealing the benefits of the covenant of grace. So now by the Holy Spirit, working with our spirits, it becomes an authenticating act. So... The benefits of Christ's sacrifice (coughs) are communicated uh, to me. And um, I've got to get back in order here because these are on single pages. Oh, there we go. Sorry about that. There we go. <clears throat> so spiritual nourishment and growth in grace, Romans, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we are feeding on Christ for spiritual nourishment. That is, it's very important. It's one of the reasons that we call it a means of grace. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, is not the bread we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Or verse 16, it's not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. It's not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Through this divine mystery, we're getting this spiritual food 
the spiritual drink, the spiritual bread that Christ has given to nourish us in our pursuit of holiness. And then it becomes, as does our baptism, a motivation to duties. He goes on in that section then to uh, say, uh, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Or verse 14, flee idolatry is, is the context of this great promise that he makes to us that enables us to flee idolatry motivates us. And so it's covenant renewal. Again, a term that's been bandied about and misused, but it is. As a covenant meal, we are renewing our pledge and commitment to God. We're renewing our vows that we've taken. And that's the difference between paedo-communion and a true uh, professor's communion. The second part of children's relationship is making covenant with God. We require them to take vows as well. And then they may come to the Lord's table. So it's the bond and pledge of our communion, the body of Christ. It's a sacrament, not a sacrifice. Paragraph 2. Um, it's a commemoration of the sacrifice. It's a praising God for the sacrifice of death of Christ. But obviously no place of the Roman Mass. It too, in paragraph 3, is to be administered by ministers. With baptism and the Lord's Supper, you must always use the words of institution. You consecrate the elements by prayer, a blessing to separate from daily common use to the special use of the sacrament. And you give both wine and bread to the communicants. It's not to be administered apart from the congregation. We don't have private communion. If someone's sick, shut in. And the elders want to do something, they go with other elders and some members. They have a mini-worship service, so it's within the context of worship. And if that person would be able to have that, they could take the Lord's Supper. But we don't take it just to the sick and distribute it as a private communion. Um, so we don't have private masses. We, deny, we don't deny the cup to the people. We don't worship the elements. Um, no biblical warrant for any of these practices. Same idea, the relation of the reality. Uh, so that uh, this is Christ's blood, this is Christ's body. They're so closely related that the one not only signifies, but in some way this is, is the covenant, not through transubstantiation of the Roman church, not through consubstantiation of the Lutheran church. It says Christ is physically present in and around. A, a much greater mystery. Christ is spiritually present. Calvin wrestled with how to express it. I think... Our standards probably do the best job of all in trying to communicate to us the presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper in paragraph 7, 28-7, 7. Were the receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually, but really indeed spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in with or under the bread and wine, yet as really, but spiritually, present to the faith of believers. And that ordinance as the elements are to their outward senses. And in some way, 
and it's to be a, a sensual thing. You're, you're to feel the bread. You're to, you're to smell it. Um, you're to chew on it. And that's why we don't need little insignificant wafers. We need a piece of bread. And I prefer unleavened bread, but nice bread. And wine, real wine. That's what Christ instituted because it attacks the senses. It's both sweet and a bit harsh. That's why I like port. Reminds us of all that Christ has suffered, but also the joy of what we're doing. But in those elements, Christ is feeding you of himself. The full benefits coming from heaven by the Holy Spirit of what he has for you. You come as you go to a doctor or a hospital, aware of, of your weaknesses and, and your frailties and, and your worries and your problems. You lay them out and you say, oh, Lord Jesus, you know what I need. Give it to me. Give me yourself unto this glorious end. And then it goes on that worthy receivers do receive Christ in this way. Unworthy receivers only eat and drink damnation and judgment to themselves. And I give you another paragraph, and this is out of the larger catechism. What's required of them that receive the Lord's Supper during the time of administration? And you need the number there, so you can, well, you've got it on your paper, but I want you to really grasp the significance of this. This is what you're to be doing while you're taking the Lord's Supper. And it is number uh, 174. You know, this means a lot to me because as a new Christian, um, I was in high school, ninth grade, and I remember, I remember my first communion only because I didn't know what I was doing. And nobody bothered to explain to me what I was doing. So I'm looking around and people have their heads bowed and this and that. And I was in a fog. And here we have our glorious larger catechism. This teaches us this is how I'm to receive Christ. So I want you all really to learn this and make it a part of your own Christian experience. Okay, it's 10 till 3. And uh, if you need to go at 3... We'll let you out the door if you pay us $10. Um, no, we'll let you out. If you need to go right now, you may go. Um, and Mark said maybe go to about 10 after 3, if there are questions. But I'm sure it's so clear there'll be no questions. And all you Baptists have been convinced, and, and it's all done. Now, I'm very open to questions. Yes, ma'am. 174. Thank you. 174, what is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the time of administration? And 175, how then to reflect? Did you profit from the Lord's Supper? That's also very, but 174 is just, it's just really wonderful. Yes, ma'am. No, if they were baptized in a Christian church, in fact, I have a little pamphlet I wrote this years ago for the, for the PCA. If they're baptized, even in a liberal church, but it was Christian baptism. Remember, it's not the intent or the piety of the one who's baptizing. Uh, if they're baptized into the, a Christian church by a lawfully ordained minister, then no, I would not. Now, I know that 
churches do this, maybe even Presbyterian churches do this. I, I just was telling my students about Baptist churches that do this, that um, a person comes back and they say, well, yeah, I was baptized, but I backslid and I'm going to be baptized again. And I know of those things, but that would not be right. Yeah, so, no. If it were, you know, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, United Pentecostal, um, any of those types of things or other cults. And what created problems for us in California was, being California, um, we had people that were baptized in all kinds of situations. So I had an intern um, who now is a minister in the OPC, and he was uh, in Calvary Chapel before he came to seminary. And he had been appointed by the officers of the church to do baptisms. So he said, do I need to go back and find the people that I baptized and tell them they weren't baptized? And I said, no. But if they came to us and said, I was baptized by some layman that the church appointed, then I would say that we should baptize them. Or somebody that got baptized in, in the swimming pool by Pat Boone. You know, he used to do that as well. He should have stuck to singing. But anyway, he, uh, he did baptisms. I don't think they know who Pat Boone is, do they? I know your daughters don't, huh? Who Pat Boone is? Okay. He was a crooner. He was a good one. He's a Christian. But <laughs> huh? Oh, I don't know his early life. Well, it's good grist for the mill. I just, if you don't agree, I asked you to prayerfully study what we've been over, uh, and then ask Mark the questions later. <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit more about the uh, child uh, in the church who is, uh, has not made, well, let's see, uh, belongs to Christ and doesn't have a new heart. He said he belongs to Christ. We're going to do that in the morning. I'm going to talk about those who are in the church who are in the covenant but are not born again. That's what you're asking about? Yeah, I, I wanted you to flesh out what you mean by belong to Christ or, or holy in First uh, Corinthians 7. Well, uh, holy, they belong to Christ. They're members of the covenant and they are to be treated as members of the covenant until they show by their heart that they're not, by their actions. Oh, okay. Thank you. Everybody get that? So the child's holy to the Lord, uh, and we treat that child. So this difference, we don't evangelize our covenant children. We tell them what God has promised and what God says about them. And they then must make covenant with God. Old people, uh, you read uh, Matthew Henry's biography of of his father and then himself. Uh, When he made his profession of faith, he actually wrote out his covenant that he made with God. So it's not merely answering those four questions. It's consciously entering into this covenant transaction, and that's where we're going to bring all of our children. So when they're young, you know, God has promised you and us these things. He's put you in a church with these benefits, and you are to trust in Christ and to love him and keep his commandments. Do you want to do that? Yes. They grow a little older. But it comes to a point then Either they say no, or their behavior begins to manifest that 
they've not been born again. Then I changed. I said, you know, if you've really been born again, if you're in this covenant, even if they made a profession of faith by this point, um, you are betraying a, a covenant unfaithfulness and as an indication that you've not been born again. And then I would deal very strictly with them at that point. So I hope any Baptist here you understand we don't baptize our children thinking they are saved and we don't think baptism saves them. Now we believe that God's made these promises and that he's going to save our seed and he's going to, he works through the family as he always has. And the great majority of our covenant children um, in the church uh, will be brought to Christ. Some from infancy, some young, some much later in life. And I encourage parents, don't, you don't ever despair. God's the one that keeps covenant. You know, Satan, because we went through this with our son, and Satan will remind you of all your failures. And uh, yes, Lord, uh, Satan, yes, I know. And God, you know. I, I broke covenant. And, uh, but you also know that all I ever wanted to do was raise my child for you. But only God can keep covenant, you see. Um, we're not really promise keepers. <laughs> we are... Uh, we, we take this oath and we plead for God, but God's the one that makes promises in baptism. We don't make promises in baptism. We respond to God's promises in baptism. So when your child is even older and away from the Lord, uh, you never quit pleading with God that he would keep his promises and plead boldly those promises. Lord, you put your sign on my child. This was what you did, not what I did. Now own that and, and grant them the reality. Pray boldly. Well, that's true of anybody. That's true of the adult who comes in by profession of faith, isn't it? But I'll get into some of that terminology tomorrow in terms of how do we think about people in the... We don't know the invisible church, you see. I know my election by my calling uh, and my response to it. Um, and I, that's what I know. But I, you know, I don't question the election of people in the church that are walking faithfully in the covenant. But... Uh, yeah, we'll get into that more in the morning. Come back if I don't at least give some semblance of an answer. Yes, ma'am. Um, you had mentioned something about like, the New Testament. And they talked about covenant in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you, you prayed it to get on the other side. All right, where was I? And, and I was towards the end. <laughs> you were saying that when they refer to this in the Old Testament, they're meaning ah. the New Testament writers refer to the Old Yes, they normally use the word covenant in the King James for the Old Testament. And they normally use testament for the New Covenant to communicate not the reality that this was like a will, but to communicate the certainty of it. So when they're using the word covenant, what are they referring to? It's the same thing, but just as I tried to say, in the Old Covenant, it, it, the the benefits had not yet been con- fully conferred because Christ had not accomplished everything. They're referring to everything I just covered. 
all the administration of the covenant of grace in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament um, they're referring to. And it, the reality, uh, all of the things are there, but it's just simply the Messiah not yet finished his work. So essentially the Hebrew scriptures are referring to the entire text from Genesis right. on. So not necessarily a specific covenant, but everything. Every covenant administration, not just one, from Adam through David. I probably shouldn't even got into that. Oh, they're all commandments. All four sacraments are commandments. That's why it says it's a sin and neglect it. If you weren't circumcised in the Old Covenant, you were cut out. And then, but it has also become a sign as well. Yes. They're not, there's no tension between the two. Uh, God has commanded us to do it because he's made it a sign of the covenant. Well, Romans 4.11, it was a seal of the justification that Abraham had by faith. No, I'm saying where in the Hebrew scripture does it talk about it being a sign? Well, that's a sign and seal. Well, Paul's, Paul's interpreting the Old Testament for you, but if you go back to Genesis 17, is where I think you're going to find the particular language that you want. Verse 11, you should be circumcised in the flesh and be foreskin. It should be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So a sign for the covenant of Abraham. Of the Abrahamic covenant, which is simply part of the unfolding of the covenant of grace, which we're in, in the fullness as it comes to its fulfillment in Christ. No, I said it has the same spiritual reality. So they're, they're all physical signs, but they all four have spiritual reality. Okay. And then how, what did you use to tie it with the circumcision of the heart? Where were you? Deuteronomy 10, 16, and 36. 30, verse 6. Jeremiah 4, 4. I know it's in Jeremiah 9, too. Frank? Uh, two more questions. Did Adam and Eve have any kids before God pardoned them? Before Cain? No, I said before he pardoned them. Oh, no. No. That's why I said that probation period was very short. Right. He could have started over. He could have shut sin off. Right. That's why I said that uh, he intended for this to happen because he was going to accomplish the grace. Kyle, did you have your hand up? Yeah. That's Caleb. 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 Kyle's over there. Caleb's there. 
up louder. I mean, even Elder can't hear you sitting beside you. A child born, uh, uh, dying in the womb, or at birth, or even in the early days of... Well, they go to heaven. If they're a covenant child, they go to heaven. Because they're under God's covenant, they're holy. Now, the age of accountability is not difficult, because the Bible says, before he knows the difference between his right hand and his left hand. So when a child begins to understand yes and no, the child's become accountable. Not at 12. But when they can understand a commandment and obey it or disobey it. Now, that doesn't mean they're still not saved. Uh, the child says, yes, I love Jesus. Well, that's a critical profession of faith. Uh, but before they articulate that, we believe that in the covenant, that uh, I think more than covenant children are saved. Our, our confession says that uh, elect children dying in infancy and those who are so severely retarded they can't think rationally um, are saved. I think the covenant children that die at that early age are elect. So I'm reasoning backwards because of the promises of the covenant. How would you know if they're elect Because they are in the covenant and they've died. So David said, I can't bring him back. But I'll go to him. Now that's obviously not just, well, I know I'm going to die as well. What's the comfort in that? No, I'm going to see him. I'm going to see him. And uh, what Eli, uh, one of the, the prophets says about, uh, was it wicked Ahab? Uh, one of the kings in the northern kingdom, his newborn was sick. And, and he says, you're going to die. And, uh, and, the, and, and the scripture says that God took him, but there was something good in him. He was also in the covenant. And God took him when he was young yeah, to deliver him from what he would have to grow up in the midst of. And Voss has a good discussion in his dogmatics as well of how the promise uh, to us and our children relates to infants dying in infancy. Maybe I misunderstood you in the past, but I thought you uh, in the past were of the position with respect to children who die before an ability to discern right from wrong, that, that Christians have a lively hope, your words, uh, of their children, uh, infants being with God. But you just said, Well, that's my lively hope. I mean, okay. it's a hope. It's a real hope. It's not a doubtful hope. Okay, okay. Well, then I misunderstood. You mean hope in the sense of the certainty of the future, not yeah. hope in the hope it's going to be right. not going to rain tomorrow. That much comfort in, in the uh, a lively hope that doesn't know. Okay. I misunderstood you. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's my fault. I could have. I don't think I've changed my views. Yeah. I think I was using hope. Lively hope, real hope. Lively sounds so much better. It does, that's why. Yeah. I remember it. I remember saying it. On more than one occasion, probably.
We all have been very faithful. You've endured. I, I appreciate it. We'll keep praying for uh, fruit uh, in our own lives, our piety. Uh, just make good use of the sacraments. Um, I, I noticed elders looking a bit shocked when I talked about weekly communion, and you hear the thing, well, you take it for granted. Well, what part of worship are we not tempted to take for granted? Now, this is, next to preaching, it's the primary means of grace. And to take of Christ for everything I need. So I've become very, I used to say that a mature church, I would do it. Um, because you need a mature church because it's going to make for longer services at times and stuff like that. But now I say it would always be my goal. Uh, in whatever church I was. So in our mission church, that is our goal. We're on one mind that we will be having weekly communion. We don't have the physical resources right now to have weekly communion. We can hardly get the coffee made uh, on Sunday mornings. So, <laughs> But that is where, where we're headed. And a lot of our Reformed churches today are moving that direction, and I'm very happy to see that. That was Calvin's position. It was the position of John Owen, many of the Puritans. Mark's raising his eyebrows. Well, I don't blame you. Anyway, thank you so much. Uh,